Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I invite you to turn to the book of Isaiah a little bit so people can see their Bibles. A little bit so people can see their Bibles. As we think about the cross and we think about all that Jesus suffered, I can think of no better place to go than Isaiah 53. And one of my favorite quotes by Charles Spurgeon is about the blood of Christ. So I want to begin by quoting Spurgeon. This was in the late 1800s. He said, quote, If there should ever come a wretched day when all of our pulpits shall be full of modern thought and the old doctrine of a substitutionary sacrifice shall be done away with, then will there remain no word of comfort for the guilty or hope for the despairing? Shall we speak with bated breath because some affected person shudders at the sound of the word blood or some cultured individual rebels at the old-fashioned thought of sacrifice? No, we will sooner have our tongue cut out than to cease to speak of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 53, starting in verse 4. It's a prophecy about Jesus. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed And was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. 
Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We could spend the next three months plumbing the depths of this passage of Scripture, but for tonight, I want us just to look at three truths that tell us about what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so here's truth number one. Jesus bore all of our guilt and sin as our substitute. Jesus bore all of our guilt and sin as our substitute. I want you to notice the prepositions in this passage of Scripture. There's a contrast. He bore our sins. He did this. He's doing all of this. But who's the recipient? Us. Our. It's our sin. It's our iniquities. If you look there in verse 4, He's borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. You know, the Old Testament uses a lot of different words for sin. And the word transgressions there means to rebel against God. To go your own way. To basically shake your fist at God and say, I want my way, not your way. To trespass, to rebel. That's what the word transgression means. It's more the action of sinning against God, more the the activity of sinning willfully against God, transgressions. But there's another word that's used for sin. It's also there in verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. Iniquities is a different Hebrew word. That really means more of our nature. The word really means perverted or bent or crooked. It speaks about the fact that we're all born sinners with the, with the nature that's depraved against God. And so the reason we commit sin is because our heart's sinful. It goes to the depth of who we are as sinners. So it's a substitutionary atonement for our sin, our iniquities, our guilt. Not his. Because verse 6 tells us what our condition is like. There's a metaphor here of like us being sheep. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're going our own way. Sheep are stubborn. Sheep are helpless. Sheep are clueless. And we basically said that's what we want. We're going to go our own way. We're going to do our own thing. But I want you to notice verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. I want you to focus in on that word. The Lord has laid on him. It's a very, very interesting term in the Hebrew language that brings back memories of the Day of Atonement. It really means to shoot an arrow and hit the target. So if you think about it metaphorically, God has his arrow of justice aimed at Jesus. And he's pierced with that arrow of God's wrath. For our sin. But think about that imagery. God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. It takes us back to the image of laying sin 
laying hands upon a substitute. You remember the Day of Atonement back in Leviticus? Leviticus chapter 16, it talks about the scapegoat. There were two goats on the Day of Atonement. There was one that was killed for the sins of the people, but there was an also the other one. It was called the scapegoat. In Leviticus chapter 16, 20 through 22, it's talking about Aaron, the high priest. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions. The same words there. Iniquities and transgressions. All their sins. And he shall put on them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself in a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Now, what's going on here when the high priest puts his hands on the top of the goat? It's a symbolic way of saying all the sin of Israel is being transferred onto that goat. All of the sins of the people come barreling down on the top of the head of that goat. And where does the goat go when he has all the sins? The goat is sent away. He's sent away into, the ESV says, a remote area. Literally, the land of cutting off. The land of cutting off to die alone. It was expected that the the goat would die by itself out in the wilderness. So here's the picture. The high priest lays all of the guilt of the nation of Israel on the head of that goat, comes crushing down on the head of that goat symbolically, and then the goat is sent away to die alone in the wilderness in the place of cutting off. It's a beautiful picture of what Israel gets to experience, that all of their sins are transferred to a substitute, and the substitute takes the sin out into the wilderness to die. It reminds us of Psalm 103, 12. As far as the yeast is from the west, does he remove our transgressions from us? So what does verse 6 say? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's as if God's hands of justice come down upon Jesus' head and all of our sins are transferred to Jesus and he, like the scapegoat, dies alone in the place of cutting off so that we wouldn't have to bear those sins ourselves. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. What was the scapegoat? The scapegoat was taken away. As for his generation who considered, he was cut off out of the land of living. He was cut off. Where did the scapegoat go? The scapegoat went out to the land of being cut off. But Jesus is perfect, he's sinless. He didn't deserve to have all those sins coming upon him. What does verse 7 tell us? He opened not his mouth. He was silent. Verse 9, there was no deceit in his mouth. He had done no violence. But he was going to bear guilt. Verse 10 tells us he was to be an offering of guilt. Verse 11, he will bear the guilt. 
Verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. So here's the amazing thing about Jesus. And you know this. You and I deserve that guilt. You and I deserve that justice. You and I deserve to die alone out in the wilderness by ourselves with all of God's justice aiming at us like that arrow. And so instead of us having to experience that, the sinless, perfect Son of God goes to the cross for us. I like what R.C. Sproul said. At the moment when Christ took on himself the sin of the world, his figure on the cross was the most grotesque, most obscene mass of concentrated sin in the history of the world. John Calvin has said this. When we look at the disfigurement of the Son of God, when we find ourselves appalled by His marred appearance, we need to think afresh that it's upon ourselves that we gaze, for He stood in our place. That's why Peter can echo these words in 1 Peter 2, 22-24. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Truth number one, Jesus takes all of our sin and bears that guilt as our substitute. Truth number two, Jesus fulfilled the sovereign will of his Father. Look at verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. I don't know at all what that means, but when it talks about God's will there, it means it was God's good pleasure to send Jesus to the cross for our sins. Now, we need to be careful here. It doesn't mean somehow that God gets some type of sadistic glee out of seeing Jesus die on the cross. It does not mean that somehow Jesus was a victim of God and that the Father and the Son are against each other and it's cosmic child abuse, as some people have called it. No, Jesus willingly goes to the cross to fulfill the will of his Father. That's why in John 10, 17 through 18, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So when Jesus goes to the cross, he is fulfilling the will of the Father. The Father and the Son are working in complete concert together to accomplish yours and mine's redemption. But truth number three, Jesus' death makes you righteous before God. How can you be righteous before a holy God? You can't. What does verse 11 tell you? Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And then in verse 12 at the very end, he makes intercession for the transgressors. How does Jesus make you righteous? How does Jesus declare you righteous? How can that happen? The moment you trust him for salvation, all of your sin is credited to Jesus and all of his perfect record is credited to you so God can look at you and say, not guilty. 
you are counted righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now I want you just to stop and look at all of the graphic words used to describe crucifixion. Just look at this. Let's just look at this in our Bibles. Look at this with your own eyes and feel the weight of these words. Verse 4, he was smitten, he was stricken, he was afflicted. Verse 5, he was pierced, he was crushed, he was chastised. Verse 6, the Lord laid upon him. And literally, I forgot to mention that. That word laid upon can also be translated violently assaulted. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was slaughtered. He was taken away. He was cut off. He was stricken. He was crushed. He was an offering of guilt. He was in anguish. He was bearing iniquities. His soul was poured out to death, verse 12. He bore the sins of many. And as painful as physical crucifixion is, very painful, may I remind you that Jesus was crucified with two thieves on both sides, so they experienced crucifixion also. Thousands of people experienced crucifixion, death by crucifixion during that time. So yes, physically Jesus suffered, but the spiritual suffering of Jesus, we can't even begin to fathom what he took in his body. We can't even begin to understand that. All I can understand for me personally is what my sin is personally. And how that came upon Jesus. I can't imagine all of our sins at one concentrated moment coming upon Jesus. Not just our sins, but the justice that's due those sins. And what always fascinates me and saddens me is that Jesus never once experienced sin. The very first time he experienced sin was because it was your sin being placed upon him. Andrew read this earlier from Mark chapter 15, 33 through 34. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sakbathini, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know the song we sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Think about the fact that you and I should have hung on that judgment tree. You and I should have been the ones to experience the justice of God. But out of his great love for sinners and his great compassion for the lost, 
Jesus hangs there for you and me. In my place, condemned, he stood. And he cried out, it is halfway done. Almost done. Going to be done someday. Tetelestai. Paid in full. It is completely finished. No more work to be done. It's the finished work of Christ. So tonight as we take the Lord's Supper, let's praise him for these three things that we've looked at tonight. Let's praise him, number one, that he bore all of our guilt and shame. Number two, let's praise him that he fulfilled the will of his Father. Let's praise him that he makes us righteous before the throne of God. So let me ask you to bow your heads to prepare to take the Lord's Supper this evening. Reminded of the the old African-American spiritual we heard earlier on the video, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble. Tremble. Lord, if we don't tremble at the cross, there's something wrong with us. If we don't see our sin at the cross, there's something wrong with us. If we don't see your perfect love for us at the cross, there's something wrong with us. If we don't see a finished work by a perfect Savior at the cross, there's something wrong with us. Help us on this night, this Good Friday, to honor you, to praise you, to thank you, to find rest in you, to celebrate our forgiveness from you. Lord, it does bring sadness to us to know that you died for our sins, but Lord, it also brings joy because we know on Sunday there's an empty tomb and you overcame death. But until that day, in a few days, help us tonight to just think about the cross. Your shed blood, your body broken.